Hello and welcome to This Week at the Movies. I'm Matt. I'm Eric. Do you remember us? It's been it's been quite some time. The last time we were here together, we were talking about the Halloween franchise. We've sailed right past Halloween. We just skipped past Thanksgiving, although we will both touch on some of our favorite Thanksgiving films uh, in this week's episode. But we are we are almost on the way to Christmas, and boy, are there going to be some fun movies coming at the end of the year. I don't know about you, Eric, but this is one of the best times of the year for movies. Kind of just, this year has impressed me from the beginning. Like, I'm so excited for what's coming up too. So, yep. Yep. And that starts with looking at a couple of the biggest releases in November, which we are going to look at today. And then, as I said, we are going to end uh, with each of us revealing one of our favorite Thanksgiving films. And Eric, you timed yours perfectly for films that are now in release. It's almost like we planned it. <laughs> but before we get there, we want to wind back. We weren't with you a couple of weeks ago, but we did get the sequel, the long awaited sequel to Black Panther. Black Panther Wakanda Forever, where we learned who was going to take over after Chadwick Boseman's untimely death. Eric, I will let you kick it off. What did you think of this film? So, I'm going to keep my thoughts simple. Um, this is a comic book movie with a very familiar story on paper that does the same things Marvel's been doing by stacking in and layering in characters to have continued stories going on in the world around it. In that sense, it's the same old, same old. But for Ryan Coogler to be handed that responsibility and to shoot as hard as he did at tackling that and making it a personal film, one that tributes Chadwick Boseman, one that brought real human emotion by tying it directly to a real world tragedy and just taking his personal stamps and aesthetic and the music that is a lot more recognizable and significant than in a lot of entries. He shoots so far above a bar that gets kind of like lowered because of familiarity that even if this isn't the greatest movie like in the world, this is head and shoulders above so many things I've seen recently. The Jurassic World Dominion, I think, killed my spirit for blockbusters earlier this year. And that's a story for another time. But I think this kind of like <clears throat> made me feel a little alive. And so I absolutely gave this two thumbs up. I thought maybe one because how often have we seen the revenge is like a poison? If you'd kill them, you've lost. You're just like them, you know. But I'm full two thumbs up on this. Yeah, you know, so Black Panther remains one of my favorite MCU films. Um, it's probably, it's still my second favorite MCU film. I love Chadwick Boseman in that movie. I love what they did with that movie. And I was really excited to see this, but also nervous. You know, I thought the trailers were very emotional. And I was like, there's no way they're going to be able to capture that in the movie. And yet they did. And still made a really fun comic book movie that had some really engaging scenes you are right in that the kind of clash of the it's not i don't even know if i would call him necessarily a straightforward villain but it's more setting up a world and a group of people that you know are going to be very involved there's been a lot of talk about building toward secret wars and the vibranium wars and wherever else they're going to go so in that sense 
you're right that it, it had a lot of heavy lifting to do, but I was blown away by the ladies that carried this film. You know, I thought Angela Bassett was very good um, as the mother, as the queen. There's a lot of talk about she should be in the Academy Award discussion. I, I think that's true. She's gives some very strong performances. And so too does Lupita Nyong'o uh, when she shows up um, and that post credit scene. Phew, it was very dusty in the theater, but I was very blown away by Letitia Wright because so much that she is asked to do uh, stepping into this. I will, I will say we, we took our nephews and um, we gave them all like 64 ounce sodas for a three hour film. Um, that maybe wasn't the greatest uh, decision in the world. They all needed to go to the bathroom every time there was a quiet moment on screen. Um, which, you know, that's predictable. I'm sure you you understand that pain. So, you know, there was some interruptions. But I'm just like, you know, trying to, to wipe away some tears a few times because it was just a beautiful tribute to Chadwick Boseman, both at the beginning and at the end. But there were a lot of emotional moments in the middle, um, too. I really appreciated Winston Duke. I loved the pop-up by a, um, I guess it's been out long enough, by Michael B. Jordan. Um, so I, I'm like you, I gave it two thumbs up. I still have it in my top 10 films of the year. Um, but I'll let you jump back in there. I think that scene with Killmonger speaks to everything that's good about the movie. There's your, your fan service side, Marvel trying to do that. There's your lights, your colors, your spectacle going on, but then there's all the personal like drama of the movie and the way she comes out exactly where a particular character died. And then there's the both of these actors that you know came back and are here for Chadwick Boseman talking about how things are going to change and move over. And that's a part of grief and loss. I think that is the single like greatest top 10 scenes of the year for me. Yeah. And there was a lot of talk about, you know, who was going to be, the new Black Panther, and there were a lot of opinions about who was going to be uh, the new Black Panther. I actually thought Letitia Wright did a wonderful job. Do you think that she's going to be Black Panther for a little bit moving forward? I know they obviously, if you watch all the way through the secret scene, you know, they're building toward eventually another T'Challa without replacing Chadwick Boseman. I mean, they found a perfect way to do that, but I, I think Shuri could carry the mantle for a while. Uh, the, the nerd in me wants to talk about the King of Wakanda also serving as the black Panther and protector. And Shuri seems to be in a place where she does not want to be queen. And I don't want to see like well, it Winston certainly Duke. seemed like they at the end they implied that Mbaku, Mbaku is going to be yes. the king. But I, I, I don't they also see implied that her bloodline was tied to being the Black Panther. So True. I think they were trying to have their cake and eat it too a little bit. I I honestly I think people said this have said this going around that Lupita Nyong'o's character seems well suited to functioning that dual role with Winston Duke serving as king, like M'Baku, which I, when I first saw Black Panther, I'm not going to lie, like M'Baku was, was like my king. I loved that. Like he was, he's such a, a likable character. But um, I just, 
Shuri's run in the comic as Black Panther served a specific purpose for the characters around her, and it served a very similar purpose in this, where she sort of shakes up the idea that there are consequences of sticking too hard to tradition. And once that's happened, I'm not sure what you would continue to do with her as Black Panther. So we'll see. I, I Obviously, she can pull it off. Like, performance-wise, she was asked to do so much and pulled off so much in this. I have no doubts about her ability to lead the movie. But I don't know. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. They'd have to have quite a little uh, time jump, though, to move on to T'Challa. There's quantum anything in this. I don't, <laughs> I've been thinking about that. The idea that there's maybe this generational thing where you will get T'Challa again as Black Panther... Let's say he turns 18. Let's say that kid was an eight-year-old. So you go another 10 years in the MCU and you bring Black T'Challa, bring back T'Challa as Black Panther. Huh. Anyways, um, I think that's totally viable, but they've done stranger things. I mean, like they they just well, never and they do have him. a youth movement kind of going on with Miss Marvel, who's a high they schooler, do. and obviously Ironheart, um, mm -hmm. who's bringing down kind of kind of that. We have we've been pretty well given the idea that the Guardians of the Galaxy is going to turn over, that they'll have that moniker, but it won't be the Guardians as we've seen them so far yep. which i don't know if you saw their holiday special but an not yet. absolute delight oh yes i'm so, i was gonna like savor that i Maybe. laughed so hard and then um they also managed to to pull tears i wow it was it's something maybe if you see Maybe it we can touch base on it tomorrow yeah uh, oh i'm not gonna watch it today i'm gonna have to see that like i mean not tomorrow them, next yeah. week we touch me, oh, you know, maybe see if you've seen it maybe well from the world of the mcu to the world of steven spielberg he's been making movies for over 40 years but it's fair to say none has ever been as personal as the fablemans which is not too loosely based on his own life. They changed the names. They changed a couple of details about it. But if you go read his Wikipedia page about his parents and his upbringing and some of the things he did, and especially the names of all of his uh, early student films, this movie is basically Steven Spielberg's life. And I was very excited to see it. My wife and I went and saw it on the big screen on Thanksgiving Day, and I was not disappointed um, you know, I knew going in a lot was made that this was kind of a love letter to his mother. Um, and a lot was made about Michelle Williams and she, she is great. Um, and there is a lot of mother son things in there, but I thought it was almost equally, if not more a, a loving tribute to his father. Um, and the support that, you know, his father may not have exactly understood his passion for making movies or, or being an artist, he was more of a scientist, but he understood and un unquestionably supported his son that there's a scene late in the film where they're living together in Los Angeles. And, you know, you can tell by the way he puts the mail on the table that he saw what came for him and he wanted to tell him. And even in a moment where his father is suffering his own little grief you know after looking at the pictures he's there to push and to love and to support his son and i thought that was that was one of my favorite moments of the film closely followed by 
an incredible cameo at the end. And I'm not going to give away who this famous director is, but it was, I, I honestly, I, I have to ask. So in the movie that the producer who's taking Sam Fableman across says, Oh, I want you, you should meet him. He's the greatest movie director that ever lived. And I know in, you know, they're talking about John Ford in terms of who's being portrayed, but I have to wonder if that isn't a little bit of Steven Spielberg giving a shout out to this particular colleague. But I, I know not everyone has loved the Fablemans. Our friend Ricky um, really didn't care for it. I loved it. I'm giving it two thumbs up. So I expected Ricky not to like it. Because if you look at the... Because he doesn't appreciate sentiment. <laughs> no, 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 not that. But like, well, I, hey, that kind of tracks a little bit with some of the... He and well, I have talked about it a few times before. He, I, you know, things, I'm always, I'm like the go toward the light. And sometimes uh-huh. he's like, like yeah. go toward the, the darkness. darkness. Yeah, I can see it. But, um... No, I kind of, and also especially with other biopics and things like that, like I think he really loved Elvis this year, right? And this was Elvis's story, but let's sensationalize and dig into maybe some of the edgier parts of it and whatnot. Even that alone is going to have the the over-fantastical stamp of uh, Baz Luhrmann on it, you know? So when you think of like biopics that are telling the stories of people whose voices have been strangled forever. And then like everything we've been doing recently, the Fablemans kind of feels like, okay, well, Steven Spielberg is like the blockbuster King and everyone it's going to mass appeal. It's like the mass appeal biopic. So it's easy to lose track of the sensitivity of it being a true story. And you're right. It's kind of like he played it real close to the chest and said that it's like, it's kind of an autobiography and then it's slowly being revealed how much it's exactly his life. And um, they, I, I 100% agree with you. What you said about both his mother and father, I think he intended to make a love story towards his mother and accidentally made his father a hero in that sense that his father had to double down on a decision that fractured his life. And in the scene you're talking about that double down is the same kind of choice your heroes typically have to make where it's like, I've suffered, I've sacrificed, would I do it again? Yes. And in fact, I think the trailer is a little deceptive. It almost makes it look like it's going to be his mother versus his father in his life, which I, I watched the movie. I don't think that's a fair characterization. Yeah. I, um, I, I felt the length of this movie, to be honest with you. Um, especially because there, it feels like there's compartments where like a movie sort of ends and another movie begins and then you find out how they're connected. But I loved it. And I gotta be, I gotta tell you my, my other favorite scene is a pinpricking film. And I'm not going to say that payoff. Yeah. But that was so incredible. Just and seeing just the way people reacted to it and that process of working it out. And you understand that that character understands the world in a certain way. And then right towards the end, there comes these moments where they really start to give you that little meta insight that the person who shows the character in the movie who communicates that way is the person communicating to you behind the camera. And then the last shot of the movie is perfect. And I gave it a full two thumbs up. Yeah, and I think 
what I'm going to speak to for a minute is some of the criticism I've seen is if you didn't know it was about Steven Spielberg, you wouldn't care. Honestly, it's hard to exactly come against that because we've known since before it was released that it was very personal to Steven Spielberg and very close to his life. But I have to say, I was bought into the emotional journey of the film and the emotional sequences. And one of the things that has always been a passion for me is, you know, and I think one of the reasons we both do what we do and the reason we're on the show is this passion for film and for storytelling. And so right up front, when you see that little boy dropped in there and seeing the greatest show on earth and this big train collision, I, I identified with that. Movies have always been a magical kind of place for me. One of my earliest, you know, seeing it on the big screen was actually a Steven Spielberg movie is my movie. That was my top 50 movie this week, Jurassic Park. I was 12 years old. And when you see Dr. Grant and Dr. Sattler and Malcolm looking at the, that was me sitting in there. I was blown away. I was blown away by the whole thing. It actually started a lifelong love affair for me reading Michael Crichton because I had my parents go get me the book after I saw the movie. And I'm just tearing through this book. And I loved the story. And I, I still remember that experience. So there's a piece of this that's about that love for art and finding that love and what it sparks in you. And I think that transcends being just about Steven Spielberg's particular story. And deeper than that, I believe it's Judd Hirsch, his uncle. That speech. Yeah, his great uncle. That undercurrent in the movie of anyone who finds himself caught between art being dismissed as a hobby, but you feeling a drive and a passion for it, and then having to make the choice to pursue it at the expense of what other people feel like should be your responsibilities. If I were to hear anyone tell me that that movie exists, I don't care who directed it. I'm going to go see it in a theater. Like... And I know that's like, okay, two film buffs are talking about a movie about film. And so they would go see it. But I think it, I think that that element speaks to any, anyone who considers themselves an artist. Yeah. And I, I mean, I just, I loved it. I thought it was a beautiful experience. It lived up to my hopes um, for it and hopefully it does well. You know, that's the other thing I love about film. It's completely subjective. No two people see a movie the same way. Um, and you know, I think that's, that's been the case with a lot of movies. I'm sure it will be polarizing. There's a lot of other polarizing movies. We're going to look at a couple next week, uh, that, you know, one of which is Ricky's actual favorite movie of the year, which I appreciated the, uh, cinematic, um, strengths of bones and all, but I will say was not my, <laughs> it's not my cup of tea when it comes well, to we'll story. review that next week. I yeah. haven't seen it and I don't want any like mood no. spoilers. I don't want, I don't know anything. I want to go. No, I can't, I can't wait for you to see a couple of them. Next okay. week. But before we get to that, there was a small, tiny holiday on Thursday known as Thanksgiving. Perhaps you've heard of it. Uh, you know, traditionally people, uh, do a lot of fun things, but it's also time with family. Well, 
Eric and I went through and looked at a couple of movies that touch on family and friendship and togetherness and the craziness of the holidays. And Eric, yours might not be uh, at first thought of as a conventional thought, but I loved your choice. And that is Knives Out. Tell us, what do you love about Ryan Johnson's Whodunit? That it's a donut. No, I you just talked about uh, it's about family togetherness. And there's a there's a sort of dark element to the movie that you're laughing at the truth of some fractured families in a certain environment. Okay, this is about a family that got together and were drawn together because of the loss of a patriarch and what is kind of dysfunctional about that. And I think a lot of people who go through the Thanksgiving holiday sometimes need to process that they're going to poke at their conservative or liberal family members. And it's, it's going to bug them and they're going to process. Like this is a movie that is about the sort of things you talk about on the way home from the family get together. Um, but more than that, it's humans uh, like pushed not quite to the point of satire, but just so that they seem like clue pieces. And it's such a satisfying laid out mystery that has twists and turns when twists and turns feel called for to me. And um, I got to not do that. I'm getting into this film, not rated territory. I'm like, well, to me, my opinion, oh, it's not fact. But like, ah, dumb. But, um, it, it just, Benoit Blanc. It's a safe space to have an opinion. <laughs> Benoit Blanc. Not in my house, but yeah. Uh, he, Benoit Blanc is such a perfectly introduced character that just kind of sinks into the movie while you're knowing everybody else. And that idea uh, that Ryan Johnson speaks to, that the detective in these stories is never the main character. He crafted a wonderful main character in uh, Marta, played by Ana de Armas. And just that that pairing worked really well. And the idea that he's going to continue it is amazing. I got to tell you, I, a little part of me was like really deflated um, seeing the opening of Glass Onion and not seeing a Ryan Johnson whodunit in the titles or credits. I think um, it says a Knives Out sequel somewhere in it. Okay. Okay. But I mean, it... So you had perfect timing because Glass Onion started its one-week theatrical run this week and, of course, drops on Netflix December 23rd. I can't wait for everyone to see it. I can't wait for you to see it. We are going to talk oh, about it. Oh, I saw it. it. Oh, yeah. Good. I did. I'm seeing the stuff in theaters now. <laughs> yeah. I'm, they, I'm getting ready. Yeah. I know. I I thought I was like, well, I guess I'll wait for Netflix. Maybe. and. Uh, if you've been following, it's obviously Screener Mountain season. And I was like, I might get Screener. No, I'm going. And I, so I went with my good friend to go see it this weekend. I was not disappointed that I did. I can't wait to watch it again when it drops. And we will look at it coming up. But obviously, you know how much I love Knives Out. If you've been following my top 50 films of all time, you know that, A, I'm kind of a curmudgeon. And I've, only, I've rated <laughs> almost 7,100 films. I finally gave my 35th film a five-star this weekend. But I it's ricky said he's never seen somebody that has a smaller percentage of five-star films knives out is one of my 
five star films. I think it was up in my top 25. I know it's it's pretty far up in my top 50. I've probably seen it 25 times. I love the writing. Wow. I love the performances. I saw it four times in theaters when it came out. That was wow. my number one movie of 2019. I was kind of frosted. It didn't get more um, award season love. I guess they're just not the kind of movies that get yeah awards necessarily but i i'm with you it's incredible the thing about knives out and the reason why it probably didn't get more attention in award season is it what's so perfect is every element that came together this like like who do you give the award to is it the set designer because that on its own if you didn't have the performances in the direction might not have held up to another movie's set design the but together that house that's built stands stronger than I think most other movies that would have come out that year. So it's just, it's just so much fun. And you'd think once you know all the twists and turns that that fun dies out, but I've now rewatched it multiple times and like it throws me for a loop and I'm still laughing. And I'd like, Oh, it's like there's there's the diminishing returns is the half-life of this movie is way too long in the, in a great way. So, um, well, and you just get some, so like, I, I love Lakeith Stanfield as, oh, yeah. as the detective. It might be one of Chris Evans' best performances. Oh, and he, like, he was and eager to get into that I, movie. I mean, he's chewing scenery, but it's great. Anna de Armas is incredible. It, it's, it's funny. Obviously, the continuing character is going to be Benoit Blanc. And it's not that I don't like Daniel Craig or didn't like Benoit Blanc, but on the first pass, he probably wasn't top five characters in that original film for me. Sure. Yeah. They, and they, they, they take risks and they make choices and it's like, he made the last Jedi and got a bunch of flack for subverting expectation. And he was like, another, well, film I have in my top, top well, 50, another one of yeah. my five star. Films. Yeah. Well, one of um, one of the things that he would learn from that experience is he's really good at subverting expectations. So here he, he like doubled down and made one of the best murder mysteries like ever. And um, can, I, I need to ask you a question. Joseph Gordon-Levitt is credited in both Glass Onion and Knives Out. Who the hell is he? Joseph Gordon-Levitt. I don't know. I, I I think it's a secret. Now I'm not going to say anything about Glass Onion other than this. I have a suspicion that he's something like the Bell, oh. and he so he's like not credited. Oh, but he gets to be. I in wonder it. if he's the Dong. That's yeah. That's that's what I'm kind of thinking. And then and because they he has no character name. He's just listed under the IMDb credits. Sometimes they make mistakes, but twice. For two different movies, when Ryan Johnson is totally the guy to keep Noah Sagan and all his favorites around, he's in there somewhere, and I'm going to find him. That's the mystery to me. I'm so. just hoping, like, if we get a four-year consideration box, if there's not a bottle of Jared Leto's hard kombucha, <laughs> I don't. Then, then they failed on something. <laughs> uh, oh my god! Well, okay, so yeah, I mean, that's why. So to me, I think it's quintessential because of how it speaks to certain Thanksgiving day experiences. It has that fall mood and it just like rings rings like fun for a family with a little bit of edginess to it. So yeah. 
And while some might have argued your choice was non-traditional, mine's probably about as traditional as you can get. Some 35 years ago now, Steve Martin and John Candy joined together for an iconic holiday classic, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And that was my pick for Thanksgiving films. I think a lot of people think of it as a Christmas movie because there's so much like snow and it's like the holiday travel. But if you're paying attention, it is actually a Thanksgiving movie. He is trying desperately to get home to his family for Thanksgiving. Um, it's a movie that I, I really enjoy. My wife and I watch it pretty much every year. We watched it a couple of weeks ago, actually, before we went on our trip. We went on a long trip where we were doing just about everything, and she named our itinerary planes, trains, automobiles, and cruise ships. Um, just because, Boats, just because she loved uh, loves that movie and loves that experience. One of my favorite scenes, actually, is um, Steve Martin about midway through tries to rent a car, and he goes out there and does not find his car, and he is just so frustrated i think expressing the frustration that we're all familiar with and we've all experienced and when he goes back he lets the lady at the car rental place have it and it is a profanity laced tirade that is i mean it's one of the first things that comes to mind when i think of this film not only because you know i may have have let um, my own profanity laced tirades slip once or twice every week when I watch the Broncos. But um, it just, it's such a hilarious scene, but I love the, the bonding that happens throughout you. You go from thinking that John Candy's character is so ridiculous and annoying. And so much of the comedy is built on these, you know, celebration of opposites <clears throat> as you're going through. But by the end, it just has such heart. Um, it's just a lot of fun, and it's a movie that I think of and I really enjoy during the holiday season. I know you got a chance to see it for the very first time. What did you think of this classic? Um, I really, really enjoyed this movie. There's something about uh, classics from this time period. I don't know if this is 80s or if this is yeah 1987 okay um comedies particularly around this era have very non-traditional structures and and very original beats to them like you said john candy when you see him you think he's just gonna be a silly guy like he's gonna be barf from space balls and he's going to be in the way the whole time but it's only like 30 minutes into the movie that you get that speech that they just use in family guy. And, and there's a sensitivity to him and it works. Now, again, like I said, this is one of those movies that I now realize, ah, okay. So when I watched family guy, when I was younger and I was seeing all these references, I didn't know what they were for, but there they are. Um, <laughs> but and that's still the enduring legacy, too, of John Hughes, who wrote and directed this, you know, did Home Alone, um, did so many classic and films from that period. When I realized it was him, I was kind of floored because I would have not known if, if I didn't see him in the credits. And to branch out this far from his traditional sort of coming of age things. Um, and just the idea of a person's arc becoming the, the guy wasn't necessarily inherently selfish. Everything that he's getting upset about, I would argue is fair, but just the quality of like human natured kindness 
out there in a world that's not too wacky. This isn't necessarily Christmas vacation or something like that, but it's, it's just touching. Now there's some dated aspects of it. You mentioned the way that they use money and, you know, there's the whole, Oh my gosh, we have to sleep together. Like, you know, it's like, okay, yeah, I get it. But even that, even that joke that some people would argue could be one thing or another, um, it pays off when John Candy is sitting in the burned up car and he's like, let's share the space together. That act of kindness kind of mirrors that earlier interaction where the both of them are kind of uncomfortable with each other and have to face that. And here it's like, we know each other. Let's embrace that. And it was really, really touching. And I am looking forward to seeing it like again sometime in the near future. Can you imagine how different the holiday landscape would be without John Hughes? He gave us home alone. <laughs> as a writer. He gave us home alone Christmas vacation. He wrote the 1994 version of miracle on 34th street. He gave us regular, you know, the, the whole vacation franchise basically came from him as a writer and planes, trains, and automobiles. I well, mean, then I got a huge problem that I need to, to nitpick at him one day about a dog. But other than that, yeah. Well, um, it's going to be a little hard to nitpick with John Hughes since he's no longer with us. Uh, rest in peace. Yeah. Except for that part about the dog. <laughs> so many iconic classics. Well, that's going to wrap it up for us uh, this week. Hopefully uh, you enjoyed a little time with your family and maybe a little leftovers. Hopefully you also weren't watching the Denver Broncos because I'm convinced now they're not actually a professional football team. It's just a 11-week prank that they've been pulling on the rest of the country. Um, it was not a great game. This morning, I was happy that I, I had these heartwarming films to think about. But we move from a week where we're looking at predominantly heartwarming films to a week uh, next week where we're going to be looking at a little different sort of film. Yeah, <laughs> giving you a sneak preview. We will also be looking at the new uh, Christmas film, Violent Night. I referenced it, Bones and All, and the film The Menu, as well as some of our favorite dark Christmas films, which Eric just gave you a little bit of a visual clue, but for you podcast listeners, I will leave you in suspense. But until then, we will see you at the movies.